Will you please take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 17. Prayer is very personal and powerful. Very personal because in prayer we share our hearts and the things that are on our hearts, including our joys and our sorrows. In prayer, we give praise and gratitude. In prayer, we share our cares and concerns, and we bring our cares and concerns to a God who cares and concerns himself with us. And prayer is very powerful because we are, in fact, talking with God, with the one who, whose power has no limit, with the Almighty One, and so as we come this morning to John 17, we move from the upper room discourse to what is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And if the upper room discourse, if, if the upper room discourse is the holy place in John's gospel, being in that it is a very private, a very special, a very unique time spent only between Jesus and his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. If the upper room discourse is the holy place in John's gospel, then the prayer of John 17 is perhaps the holy of holies. It is the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus. The timing of this prayer is telling, again, just hours before his arrest and betrayal. And the content of the prayer is similarly insightful. Uh, here we listen in. Now think about this. Here we listen in on, as God the Son speaks freely with God the Father in ways that are both personal and powerful. And in coming to this prayer, we are indeed standing on holy ground. There are three main sections to the prayer. First, Jesus prays for, uh, for himself then for his immediate disciples, then for uh, all believers in general. And our focus today, from verses 1 through 5, is on the first of these things, his prayer for himself and what it means for us. For in these first five verses, we, we find these first five verses reveal something of our great salvation while also directing our attention to the one who saves so that we might glory in the Lord of glory now and forevermore. I want to say that again. 
these first five verses reveal something of our great salvation while directing our attention to the one who saves so that we might glory in the Lord of glory now and forevermore. Let's read it together. John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God, we thank you for the time we have this morning in your word, and we pray now that you would teach us from it and truly change our lives by it for our good both now and forever and for your eternal glory, we pray. Amen. So Jesus begins by praying for glory, notice. His own and the Father's as well. In fact, he prays for his own glory in order to glorify the Father. In other words, the glory of the Son enhanced the glory of the Father and vice versa. But why does Jesus pray for glory? Well, I think we find the answer in the verses that follow, namely in what Christ has done to secure our great salvation. So verse 2 speaks to the gift of Christ. Verse 3 refers to the mission of Christ, while verse 4 to all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So I now want to take a look at each of these verses, one by one, asking ourselves what we learn about our salvation and how it points to the glory of Christ. Okay? What we learn about our salvation and how it points to the glory of Christ. Verse 2 begins with a statement on Christ's lordship. That he has been given divine authority over all people. But his is not an abuse of authority. He is not a Lord who lords over people harshly, nor takes from them whatever he can. Instead, he is the Lord who freely gives to people what they otherwise could never attain themselves. As Lord of all, Jesus gives eternal life to all whom the Father gives to him. You see, there are two kinds of life. There is life. then there is eternal 
life. The first kind refers to the allotted time you have on this earth. Beginning in the womb and extending to the grave. Every person who has ever lived or ever will live has received life of this sort. This is life in the general sense and it is common to us all. Then there is eternal life. But to understand eternal life, we must, I think, first understand death. Death, as we know it, originates at the fall. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything good and all is good as Adam and Eve enjoy unbroken communion with the Lord and the world that He so wonderfully made. They enjoy unbroken communion with each other, with one another, and even with creation itself. But in Genesis 3 being deceived by Satan and his wicked schemes against God. They chose their own way over God's sin, entered the world, and sin, we're told, brought death. Death to their unhindered communion with God. Death to their relationships with others. Death to all humanity who came after them. From that time forward, tragically, all life would end in death. And all who die in their sins would remain separated from God forever destined not for heaven, but instead for hell. And death, obviously, hits home this morning. As we grieve... the loss of a dear member and brother and friend. But for Dennis, the story does not end in death because Dennis did not die in his sins. Instead, he received from God years ago forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life so that he lives even today. Eternal life, you see, is not bound by time. It's not bound by the number of days or months or years you have until death. It's not even bound by death itself. It extends beyond death so that even though a person dies, yet will he live. 
like Dennis, the person who has eternal life, will close his eyes in this world only to open them in the very next moment in the presence of God and in the glory of heaven. That, dear friends, is unbelievably good news. That is why we can rejoice for our dear brother. So when the Bible speaks of eternal life, it's referring to a person's salvation from sin and death. And when it comes to our salvation, the first thing we need to know is that it owes to God and His grace, not to anything we have done or earned. Salvation is a gift from God, owing not to your good works or your choosing of Him or anything on your part. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, of eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only as we begin to realize this, that salvation is God's gift to us, can we begin to appreciate just how great a gift it is. Because God owes us nothing. God is not obliged in any way To the contrary, we are indebted to Him, yet in His great love, in His rich mercy, in the abundance of His good grace, He cancels our sin debt and saves us back to Himself. He gives to Jesus those whom He has called, who in turn receive from Jesus the gift of eternal life. The gift of Christ. And this is eternal life, Jesus continues in verse 3. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here Jesus elaborates on the nature of eternal life, and he says that it's not merely something you have, but found rather in someone you know. I think that's helpful. It's not just something you have, but found rather in someone you know. You probably have heard it said that Christianity is not about religion, but relationship. Not religion. For religion's sake, but for the sake of restored and meaningful relationship with God. Now, there are a few exceptions, I get that. But I suspect that most people in your life, if pressed for an answer, would acknowledge the existence of God. They would. Most do. Christianity, however, not only affirms his existence, it also teaches that you can know God and that God actually wants to be known, not from a distance, 
but personally. He wants to be known for who he is as he is. The only true God, as Jesus says here, only meaning exclusive, unique, one of a kind, not one among many. True, meaning uh, uh, verifiable, real, trustworthy. God, meaning God. Supreme, preeminent, the Almighty. Listen, the only true God wants to be known. He wants relationship with us. So he discloses himself and avails himself. He discloses and avails himself through general revelation, like creation. Right? The wonder of creation points to whom? The Creator. He discloses himself through specific revelation, like the Bible, which is his word. But more than these, he discloses and avails himself through Jesus Christ, who reveals God like no other whom God himself has sent. You see, of such importance to God is our relationship with him that he sent his son to make him known. So whereas verse 2 speaks to the gift of Christ, I think verse 3 speaks to the mission of Christ. Verse 2 presents Jesus as Lord, authority over all flesh. Well, verse 3 presents Him as Savior or Messiah, which is what Christ means. Christ is not His last name. It's His title. It describes who he is, just as the name Jesus describes what he does, that he, came, that he came to save his people from their sins. Jesus described his mission this way, that he came to seek and to save the lost. Please hear this. And if you already know it, rejoice in it and please share it with someone who doesn't know. When faced with our sin, God chose not to end us or wipe us from the earth, but to save us. As the Savior sent by God, Jesus can restore your relationship with God, but relationship with God is realized only as you trust in Christ. Only as you admit your need of salvation and trust Christ as Savior are you saved to God to enjoy eternal life with Him. Eternal life, therefore, so important. Eternal life is not common to all. It's not. It applies only to those persons who, being called by God, grab hold of God's gift themselves. They grab hold of the gift by trusting in the giver, by believing in Jesus Christ, whom God has sent.
In verse 4, in verse 4, we move from Christ's gift and mission to the world to all that he has accomplished on our behalf. I glorified you on earth, he prayed, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, what does this say about our salvation? It says that salvation is the work of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself in full obedience to the Father in order to save sinful people from certain death by dying in their place and raising to new life. And so we have these wonderful passages in Scripture, like Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The hour indeed had come. The appointed time at which God himself would offer the ultimate sacrifice for all sin forever. The entire sacrificial system we read about in the Bible pointed to this very hour, to a sacrifice of another kind. People of ages past longed for this hour, even that they offered sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, served to remind them, and now us, that our sin offerings are insufficient. Like cancer, our sin runs so deep and, dis- and so destroys us that even our best efforts, though, though, though they may be very sincere, cannot keep the dreaded disease at bay because sin breaks our union with God. The only way to repair and restore that most important relationship was for God to do what we could never do. So in the eternal will and goodness of God, it was decided that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would in fact become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you with me this morning? The hour had come. Everything hinged on that hour. Everything hinged on that hour. Everything before the cross looked forward to that hour and everything that has transpired since looks back to that hour. Because on the cross, Jesus suffered once. Once. He suffered once. It wasn't an offering year after year. He suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. On the cross, Jesus bore our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. On the cross, Jesus, though He was rich, became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we thumbed our nose, while we rebelled with risen fists, while we questioned Him and doubted Him and disobeyed Him, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for me, for you, for all 
who grab hold of this gift, all whom God has called. This was the work Christ was about to accomplish, writes Marcus Rainsford. Satan, the enemy of God and man, was to be overthrown. The Goliath who had defied the armies of the living God was to be trampled underfoot. And the Son of Man was to do it. Death, the wages of sin, was to be fully paid. And through death, Christ was to destroy him that had the power of death, to abolish death, to extract its sting, to swallow up death in victory and rise again to die no more, but with the authority to impart his own risen life to his people so that henceforth they might live in him. He thus delivered them who through the fear of death all their lifetime were subject to bondage. This was the work Christ had in view, and the accomplishing of it was his glory. What a picture of God's heart and of Christ's humility and fierce determination and absolute and obedient trust in the Father. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Which brings us back to verse 1. And what Jesus sincerely desired in these moments. He prayed for glory. For his own as well as the Father's. Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Again, verse 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He was praying for glory. I want you to notice just how God-centered this is. How Christ-centered is His prayer. And how instructive that is for us. It's been well said that the chief end of man or the, our main objective in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This means that life, even eternal life, though obviously a priceless gift from God, hear this, is not primarily about you. It's not primarily about your perceived needs or how God merely enhances your life. It's not about the superficials of life or simply feeling better about yourself. Listen, frankly, other religions can offer that if that's all that matters, if that's all that life is. 
is your perceived needs or feeling better than your feeling better about yourself? Modern psychology can offer that. Secular seminars can enhance the superficials of life. And even motivational speakers can make you feel better about yourself. But the Christian gospel desires so much more for us. And that the Christian gospel is primarily about Christ. It's about God and relating with God and knowing God and enjoying God. It's about the restoration of the creator-creature relationship and the wonder of walking with God anew where we are free to glory in the Lord and receive from the Lord His infinite goodness that, that our souls, your soul, my soul, that our souls so desperately desire. The Christian gospel doesn't, doesn't merely enhance your life. It is life. And it is life eternal. And so how then should we respond to these things as we work our way toward application? What application is there for us in this passage? I have just one suggestion that I think is clear, clear in the text and clearly implied. And that is this, to glory in the Lord of glory. Glory in the Lord of glory. You see, you glory in things for which you are thankful when someone gives you or serves you unexpectedly or surprises you or gives you something from the heart that touches you, that someone, is this not true? That someone and that something immediately become very special to you. Something for which you are very grateful. You glory in things that amaze you, do you not? So you see a sunset that stops you in your tracks as you take in the sheer beauty of color and color combination. Or have you ever been witness to something that just lifts you and leaves you in awe, amazed far beyond what you imagine? I remember when Sal and I saw Les Mis on Broadway. I was undone. I was undone. I was undone not only by the story, but by the unbelievable talent on stage, by the performance. The performance itself was glorious. You glory in things you are proud of. You glory in things you're proud of. Are you proud to name the name of Christ? Do you wear Do you wear that name proudly You know when your kids bring home an art project from school or an excellent report card or an award they won What do you do 
You celebrate it. You put it on the fridge. You post the news on social media because you're proud. You're proud of what they've done and you're proud of who they are. You glory in things you enjoy. And hear this, your enjoyment is enhanced as you share it with others. You enjoy it more when others enjoy it too. So an illustration. Andre and I went to the 49er game this last Monday night. And the Niner, I'm not a Niners fan, but I was so glad to be there. But the Niners won 28 to 0 to the delight of the 68,000 plus fans in attendance. Every play that went the Niners' way was met with cheers and applause. Some plays were met with unified chants. I didn't get it. That everyone knew. Everyone knew that when this happens, we all say this. High fives and even hugs among total strangers. I had fun watching Andre trying to high-five the guy next to him. Three or four or five times they went to high-five and just the timing was off. It was one of those, you know, it's like, it's just, but the point is, is that it didn't matter that you didn't know each other because you were all enjoying the same team. Excited for the game, each fan's joy increased as they enjoyed the team together. You can't get that in your living room. You can't get that when you watch the game from your sofa. You can't get the energy of 68,000 people. And then you'll need to indulge me. I have just one other thing about that game that I think is very, very helpful, I hope. We arrived early, plenty of time before kickoff, and it was my first trip to Levi's Stadium, and so we decided to tour the on-site team museum. And so we saw life-sized statues of great 49ers of the past, as well as key moments in franchise history and video replays of significant game highlights through the years. Various stats and player records were on display. There were interactive displays that really helped put you in the moment. Team and player memorabilia was showcased beautifully, including, as the tour ends, including the five Super Bowl trophies proudly positioned for all to see and enjoy. Really, they spared no expense. 
I was, it was a very, very well done, and I was very, very impressed. It was, I enjoyed walking through that museum. It was a glorious tribute to the organization and all that it had achieved. And my point is this. As an organization, the team gloried with this museum. As an organization, the team gloried in its own glory for the glorious benefit of every single person who entered. Now, I think, in a sense, that's the heart of Christ's prayer here. When he prays for glory, his own and the Father's, he wants to display all that he has done, the manifold wonder of our salvation, so that all people from all generations in all places will behold and enjoy the glory of God. Therefore, to glory in the Lord of glory means to appreciate, to honor, to praise, to celebrate Him. It means to make much of Him, to walk through the tour of Christ's saving work, so to speak, and stand in awe each step of the way. It means to to acknowledge and exalt and exult in His great worth. Is He not worthy of His glory? He was in the beginning with God and is God, and all things were made through Him and for Him. And you consider His life and ministry on earth, His words and works that reveal the presence and power of God. You consider His death his payment for sin and defeat of Satan. Consider His resurrection from the dead, His, his, his triumphant return to heaven, His enthronement at God's right hand, His sending of the Holy Spirit, His crowning as head of the church, His continual building of His church, even to this very day. Consider His promised return to gather to Himself all who are His. He is the Lord who saves and sanctifies forever a people belonging to God. Is God not worthy of His glory? Consider the holiness of God. I mean, even as we just talked this morning, the holiness of God, and that He does not ignore wrong or sweep sin under the rug. The justice of God who upholds all that is right. The love of God that pursued us even in our ignorance and rebellion. The generosity of God to offer what we could never offer. The wisdom of God who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The power of God. who transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Consider the rich mercy and abundant grace of God who owed us nothing yet gave us everything. Is He not worthy of His glory? So Christ's desire to be glorified and to glorify the Father was not self-centered in any way. No, it arose from a heart of absolute selflessness in that Jesus gave all He had to secure our great salvation to the glory of God our Savior. We get the gift. He gets the glory.
So, regarding the gift, receive it. Regarding the gift of Christ, receive it. Regarding the mission of Christ, be thankful for it. He came to seek and find you. And regarding the the saving work of Christ, trust in it. Enjoy it. And share the joy with others. Eternal life is a gift to be received thankfully as you trust in Jesus Christ and all that he has achieved for you so that you may glory in the Lord of glory now and forevermore. Amen. God, you are worthy of your glory. We stand amazed at your goodness toward us. Thank you. Please continue to make us more thankful. Please continue to make us more proud of you, more proud to be yours. Please continue to to make us to be amazed. God, will will you awaken us from our slumber? Will you breathe life into our sometimes numb and lifeless thoughts and feelings and emotions? Will you keep us from just going through the motions? Will you increase our joy in you? Will you, will you make us to be sharers of that joy? for the increase of another's joy, which together, we, the joy of, of each is, grows moment by moment. You are worthy of your glory. We glorify you today. Thank you for the Lord of glory. For Jesus Christ and all that he has done. In his name we pray. Amen.